Winter was here, but we're just getting started here on our Game of Thrones weekly rewatch on post-show recaps. And now, here are the two guys who most certainly would also be assigned to the stewards of the Night's Watch. I'm Rob Desmond. Here's Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? I'm doing great, and I would be doing even better if that was true. Like, if I was on the Night's Watch and I was assigned to the stewards, I don't think that you could see a happier Josh Wiggler. Like, being a builder, let alone a ranger, that sounds like a nightmare. I'll take steward, more food, that sounds great. Yeah, steward is probably the cushiest job on the Night's Watch that John is very upset that he did not get to go be a ranger or, I guess, a builder, but he has to be a steward. I did think that uh, Lord Commander Mormont sounded a little bit like a fancy boy when Maester Eamon said that John would need to change his sheets and bedding daily. I mean, what is this, a hotel at the Castle Black? Look, you're the Lord Commander. I think that you've earned the right to crisp sheets. Like, I think that that is something that after daily all... Daily sheet changes? Yeah, if you're, you know, Night's Watch, Lord Commander, it's a stressful job. The least you could ask for is a clean night of sleep. I think that's fair. I don't think that's too ridiculous. I don't even think they change your sheets daily like in a hotel. Well, if you have the do not disturb sign, definitely not. And I mean, that's yeah. just that's my move. So I'm I'm sleeping in the dirt or the land, I should say, in Dothraki. OK. All right, Josh, a lot to get to here in a uh, pivotal episode of Game of Thrones first season. I'm really enjoying this uh, rewatch of the first season of Game of Thrones that, you know, the show that I'm not spoiling anything here, but the, the show will go on probably to reach higher highs. But, uh, you know, everything is just so tight here in the first season and very tense. You know, like it really does have this feeling of being, um, you know, a really taut thriller here through this first season of Game of Thrones, where you're following Ned Stark down this political rabbit hole of clearly there are problems within the Baratheon family that he is trying to unravel as best as he can um, but perhaps he is braver than he is wise as some people point out in this episode and we've been with him on this journey all season long and we have certainly felt in our gut that a guy like Littlefinger shouldn't be trusted and Cersei Lannister we have seen her do some terrible things up to this point but to watch Ned go up against Cersei with Littlefinger has, as his backup and to watch that fall apart in this first episode in the seventh episode rather uh it's exciting it's really it's really cool it's a great ending it's a great cliffhanger here it's got an iconic title derived from an iconic line between ned and cersei when you play the game of thrones rob you win or you die there is no middle ground it's great it's really really cool most of the action in this episode takes place at King's Landing. We also will see what's going on with John being sworn in at the wall. Yeah, our first uh, our first sighting of John in a long while. I think he yeah. sat out two episodes. Yeah. And also, uh, we will talk about what's going on in Essos after a uh, assassination uh, attempt against Danny's life gets blown up by Ser Jorah. But let's talk through all of the political, the palace intrigue, as they like to say. The Josh. palace, the palace intrigue with a with a change of the guard right at the top. Uh, there are, you know, that's a it's a clash. The king's guard, the king's guard, indeed. Uh, well, we're gonna we're gonna lose a king and gain a king in this episode, where Bobby B. Robert Baratheon will no longer be with us as of this episode. So pour one out and potentially, you know, pour out whatever Lancel Lannister is bringing along because that sounds like dangerous stuff. 
Yeah, so we see Robert Baratheon, uh, the victim of just getting uh, gored by a boar in uh, his hunting mission. We even see a little bit of what's going on there. It's not good. Robert Baratheon says he can smell it. Smells like death. Not good. Stinks like death, which is a, a frightening cologne indeed. Yeah, he has been around death before. He, you know, is described even in this episode by Cersei in that scene between Ned and Cersei as, you know, he used to be ferocious and lean, and he's been described as one of the great warriors of his time. And he's a little bit removed from that towards the end of his days, but he has been on the battlefield and he has seen some stuff. So he knows the stench when he smells it, and he knows it's coming from him. And there is sort of just a frankness about about Robert Baratheon's death, even in his own eyes, where he knows where he's going. He knows this is resolving soon. Just bring me the milk of the poppy and let's be done with it. So to just uh, reference an earlier scene in this episode where Ned and Cersei really have it out, that Ned gets into everything with Cersei about how I know that these children are not Roberts, that these are Jamie Lannister's children, and I am going to spill the beans to Robert when he gets back, and then you're going to be in big trouble, mister. Yeah, pretty much. And basically, you know, Ned kind of giving her a little bit of an olive branch to some degree, at least, and saying, like, you should leave now. You should take your kids with you. You should get out of King's Landing. I don't want their blood on my hands and I can't be held responsible for whatever's going to happen next once Robert knows the truth. And Cersei is pretty firm in her standing where she's like, yeah, no, uh, that's nice, but I'm okay." Uh, But it is a lot. You know, it, it really does give you some insight into the kind of guy that Ned Stark is, is even as he's about to make his power move, he's the kind of guy that tells you that he's about to make his power move. He's mm-hmm. the kind of guy that gives you that heads up because he is fundamentally, at least in his mind, he is a good guy. Uh, he is an honorable guy. He is a loyal person and he plays by a certain code, but it's not a code that Cersei Lannister abides by. Do you think that there's some part of Ned, though, that feels like that he is willing to take the easier route where we see a couple times in this episode, Renly describes to him a plan of like, OK, here's what we'll do. We'll kidnap Joffrey, then we'll hold the king. Ned's like, no, 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 we're not going to do that kind of thing where he tells Cersei just to leave. It seems like that he is trying to avoid this sort of confrontation that could lead to casualties in terms of unseating the Lannisters. He has a strong moral compass. You know, it's always pointing north, ironically enough, where he really knows what should be done. He feels very strongly about what is right and what is wrong. And I think that's what guides him through everything. Now, when he thinks something is right, he might be wildly wrong, uh, as we see him putting trust in the very wrong person in this episode in Littlefinger. Um, So there there's there's that aspect to it. Um, beyond that, I do I do think like he's not the kind of guy who's going to be willing to uh, to you know kidnap children and to you know possibly use Joffrey as a bargaining chip. You know, physically hanging on to this kid and then wresting power away from the Lannisters that way. That's just not how Ned rolls. So I think something like that is just very clearly never going to be an option for him. Josh, I want to ask you about something from that scene between Cersei and Ned, where Cersei says to Ned, Ned, you made a big mistake. When you got to the throne room after Jamie had killed the Mad King, 
Jamie was sitting there. All you had to do there, Ned, was walk up the steps. You would have been king of the seven kingdoms. All you had to do was take it. Do you find, I mean, was that an option that Ned Stark could have become the king? I mean, what would have happened? He would have had, if he would have like then stabbed Robert in the back? Yeah, I don't know how that would have worked out. I, I think that it was pretty clear at that point that Robert Baratheon was going to be the guy. Uh, so I don't know what sort of political maneuvering would have had to follow Ned just sitting on the throne. I don't think that it's like a capture the flag thing where <laughs> yeah, like, I was going to say like a <laughs> WWE ladder match where it's like if Ned would have just climbed the ladder right. and grabbed the belt, he would be the king now, but he yeah, blew it. It's not like scaling the aggro crag and like the first person <laughs> who gets there you know wins like oh purple is the winner like it doesn't work out that way i think that there is like an arrangement already in place where robert baratheon is you know is the front man of this operation and ned is sort of his co-lead but he's not the person who's going to take that top spot um so i don't know how that would have worked i think it would have required some political maneuvering that is not really seemingly in ned stark's wheelhouse so i don't know that ned being the king was ever an option at least at that point um i think maybe earlier in the confrontation and um, earlier in the conflict and earlier in the in the rise of the rebellion maybe that was a point of discussion and maybe that was something that could have been done but in terms of that moment i don't know josh this was a big little finger episode lots of stuff going on with little finger he has an extended scene in the brothel where i mean it really is uh the little finger is creepy uh narrative is is very strong for me on this rewatch i actually watched this episode last night with my wife and when the scene was over she's like oh little finger is so creepy He's really, really gross. Uh, like, just to, like, um, politely describe one of the things he says, just play with the donkey, you know? Just, like, very, like... <laughs> very haphazardly just like dropping that in so casually it's a really weird scene where we are in a little fingers horror house and he is monologuing and as all good villains do rob monologuing his truest truest thoughts as Roz and another one of his employees are getting it on to to mm-hmm. test to test things out uh they have work later that practice. night you know just practicing you know practice is how you get to city hall is what i've heard in the city watches well, uh, mm-hmm. and L- Littlefinger is talking about his past and uh, describing a situation that clearly we can uh, we can divine. He is talking about the Starks and and Catelyn Tully, who goes on to marry Ned Stark. So really, for the audience, kind of tipping his hand at this point that he is not the biggest Ned Stark fan in the world, and the way he is going to get one over on Ned Stark, uh, it's not a fight, but it sounds pretty graphic nonetheless. Yeah. And uh, Roz is asking Littlefinger about this woman. And because Roz is like, oh, uh, you know, Littlefinger, Lord Baelish, why don't you join us? He's like, no, I can't. And she says to him, oh, it must be, uh, you know, this woman that you are obsessed with. She must be quite a beauty. And Littlefinger says, well, no, not really. <laughs> well, Littlefinger. Yeah. Shading Catelyn Tully. I wonder if that was like the same answer he would have given before she showed up in King's Landing. Like, did he have like a change of heart? He's like, ah, you know, it was better in my mind's eye. I remember I remember things differently. Uh, either way, it's just kind of a punk thing to say. Uh, but she has an impeccable bloodline, apparently. That's the that's yes. the good news about Catelyn, which to me 
is, uh, you know, an odd way to have described his uh, longing for Cat Stark, but we can talk more about that uh, later on in the episode. So we're going to see then, I mentioned that Ned is going to have this conversation with Renly about what they should do. Ned will also have a conversation with Littlefinger, and Littlefinger sort of uh, tries to give Ned the opposite advice. Uh, He says, make peace with the Lannisters, because then you could marry your daughter to Joffrey and it'll be good Joffrey being in power. This could be a positive thing for you. It could be a positive thing if you are able to impart some of your Starkian wisdom onto Joffrey Baratheon, this kid who we all know is just a little bit of a twerp. Maybe you can straighten him out. I mean, it seems like you've done a decent job with Theon Greyjoy, even though he's being a bit of a turd to Osha up in the north in this episode. Like, you have experience with raising, you know, the black sheep. Uh, like, Jon Snow is a great example of that, where he is Ned's bastard son, but he has raised him like he's one of his own. Why can't you just take that same approach to Joffrey Baratheon? And honestly, it's not a bad point. But I do think, you know, we have seen that Joffrey is a special case. Like he is a he's a pretty demented little kid. It's going to take a lot of work. And Ned would be getting him well beyond his formative years. I don't know how impressionable Joffrey is at this point. We saw him in the throne room. This kid had been king for five seconds and he was a little turd. Right. He was clearing his schedule so that everybody could uh, swear fealty to Joffrey. Yeah. That was going to take a whole day. That was that was his first act of business. Hmm. Dot, dot, dot. Hmm. I don't know. (laughs) So we're going to see Ned talk to Littlefinger. And basically, he wants Littlefinger to make sure that the gold cloaks, the, the city guard, are going to stay loyal to Ned in any potential confrontation with Cersei. Because Ned is going to be summoned to the throne room and he is going to present this letter that King Robert has written And then this is going to be sort of his ace in the hole where he's going to say now, okay, all right, Joffrey and Cersei, you guys get out of here. I'll step in now as protector of the realm. This is a great scene uh, when Ned has what Cersei calls a paper shield and he comes into the throne room with this and, you know, waving it around like this is the thing that is going to get him to win the day. And she just rips it up. You know, she just rips this thing up. This these final thoughts and wishes from Robert Baratheon, who is no longer with us, who has dictated this to Ned. Ned making an alteration or two, trying to protect his buddy on his way out the door. Maybe, you know, could have talked that through with Robert a little bit further I think maybe would have been a good move but decides instead of writing Joffrey Baratheon writes his rightful heir because Ned knows the truth at this point but he brings this paper shield into the throne room Cersei rips it up for everybody to see and I think that this is very emblematic of Game of Thrones this moment I think that this is a moment that is really instructive towards how you view the show moving forward where this is a show where just because you have like conventional wisdom and the honorable cause on your side where that would be enough to get you to the next step in a traditional fantasy narrative or even just a traditional narrative oftentimes where you would hope that that would be the way of the world it's not always the way of the world it's not always the way things go if all you have is this one sheet of paper and it can just be ripped into a million pieces by the person who physically literally has the higher ground in that moment in time then where's your cause what do you have left Uh, and we 
see it blow back on Ned very, very quickly in this moment. So I love this scene. I think it's really cool, and I think it's very instructive for how Game of Thrones and sadly sometimes life just works out, Rob. Right. And Cersei goes over and says, uh, oh, Sir Barrison, let me see that letter for a second. And really, uh, Ned fell for the oldest trick in the book, the old let me see that letter. But Cersei only rips the page in half and then in half again. I would have, if I was Cersei, maybe ripped it up into, uh, you know, a million pieces as, you know. But again, is this sort of a pre-Scotch tape world that if you do, rip the letter into four pieces, that that's enough? Yeah, Sir Scotch had not been born yet. Uh, <laughs> Sir Scotch of House Tape was was not alive yet. So the the uh, the tape was not invented at this moment in time. And I don't right. know if, you know, if they could have brought it down to the forgery and Gendry could right. have forged it together. Who knows? There was not going to be some sort of like a Doc Brown, Marty McFly situation going on here. Although that would have been great. Yeah. Imagine Doc Brown rips into the middle of the Red Keep. Ned! (laughs) (laughs) Don't hand it to our Ned! We have to go back, Ned! Trust me! Yeah. Yeah. So we then see where there is a bunch of orders given out of, okay, seize Ned. We have orders to, you know, seize the queen and seize Joffrey, lock them away. Ultimately, what's going to happen is the gold cloaks are going to betray Ned and his forces. All of the Stark men, which are with Ned, they're all taken out. And we end up with Littlefinger jumping up behind Ned and really, uh, you know, I, I feel like that this was a, a little bit, uh, I guess that Ned might have just been in shock here to have Littlefinger be able to uh, get the best of him, right? I would imagine like Ned Stark, uh, had his leg not been uh, getting a spear through it a couple of weeks ago, would have just flipped Littlefinger over his head. Yeah, I think two things on that. One is, as you're pointing out, I think it's pretty, the show does a really good job of, and Sean Bean especially does a really good job of just like showing how weak Ned is in this moment in time. And they bring that up earlier in the episode, like, are you, you do not seem like you're physically feeling so hot. And like, he's just like kind of sweating. He has this cane. He's limping around. So just physically, he's not really all together there. He's not in fighting shape. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is to like kind of once again to avoid back to the future he's probably having deja vu where like this just happened to him he just had a moment where he just watched like his closest people get murdered in the streets in like the complete like to him a random act of violence as Jamie Lannister rode into town and killed Jory Castle and the rest of those guys and now it's happening again so you could just imagine him being like there's like another Ned Stark like tucked behind the Iron Throne watching this happening Deja vu, deja vu, as he's scrambling to put those pieces of paper back together. So I do think that there's a little bit of a, a little bit of like shock from that aspect happening with Ned as well. Boy, I do think that time traveling Ned Stark could be an option for HBO for another <laughs> Game of Thrones spinoff. I think that sounds like a really cool idea for a show. I would watch that. Uh, I don't know. Back to the Future Rose. <laughs> So let's talk about some of the other situations in this episode uh, that there is the assassination attempt that Robert had ordered earlier this season, which ends up coming in the form of a wine merchant who is trying to get Danny to sip on some poison wine. This comes right as Jorah ends up getting his pardon and he can't go through with it. He can't see Daenerys 
ultimately get taken out here. And then he comes back and ends up being the hero in the eyes of Danny and Carl Drogo. It's kind of cool where, um, you know, on his deathbed, Robert Baratheon is talking about, you were right. You were the only one who was right, Ned. We should not be trying to kill the Targaryen girl. Rescind the order if it's not too late. And Ned tries to do it. And Varys is like, ah, yeah. So about that, like the order's been given. That's going to be really pretty much impossible to reverse. And if not for the good graces of Jorah Mormont, it would have gone through. Um, Jorah, we have already established at this point on the show had been, you know, trading secrets back to the crown is like trying to kind of get his way back to Westeros potentially that way. Um, but we've also been seeing, you know, seeds planted throughout these first few episodes that Jorah has a lot of loyalty towards Danny and a lot of affection and respect towards Daenerys. Um, but we haven't really seen like the rubber have to really hit the road in, in such an epic way. Like he stood up to Viserys back in episode six in Viserys's final episode, but that wasn't like an, a moment of like immediately I need to step in and save Danny's life but here he makes a choice and we definitely have already have established at this point that Jorah is a little bit of a spy but I think that Jorah is making his stand here and making it pretty clear to the viewer at this point that he's team Targaryen all the way so if not for Jorah Mormont uh, this whole story in Essos would have uh, ended very very quickly Okay. Meanwhile, up at the wall, we're going to see John and Sam both sworn in as members of the Night's Watch in this episode. And we get to then see John north of the wall for the first time. We're going to then see them uh, get sworn in in front of the Weirwood tree, which is uh, very important in terms of the old gods. The old gods and the new. Yes, the new gods are kind of like the dominant religion uh, in Westeros. The seven, the faith of the seven, uh, which is something we'll learn more about as we're trucking through Game of Thrones. Uh, if you tried to quiz me right now to name all of the seven, I would fail, unfortunately. How about you, Rob? I don't know. You want to go back and forth and see how many we can get? <laughs> we can we, we can do that, but it might just take a while. I know the stranger is there. You got the crone. You've got the maiden. You've got the mother. You've got the warrior. So I've got five. Can you get the, the well, other two? The father, right? The father. I think the father is in there. Yeah. Uh, you said the crane? The smith. Smith. Okay. Yeah, I think we got yeah, it. I think we got it. That was pretty good. Okay. Yeah. You got all Gotta, the hard ones. Yeah. Let's give ourselves more, more credit, potentially. <laughs> Yeah, Just I knew you had a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, John is not really thrilled. Sam is trying to show John the bright side, though, of like, hey, you are the personal steward of Lord Commander Mormont, that he maybe is trying to train you for command, that he really wants to take you under his wing. Yeah, but John is once again uh, really acting a oh, little snivelly. Yeah, that's not fair. I'm, I'm the better, best. Better than I'm anybody. the best. But you know, he's acting really to use uh, one of Theon's words, impudent right now. You know, <laughs> he is he's being rather rude. He's a rude dude. This John Snow. He's like talking about how being a steward is the worst thing ever in front of two people who are such decisive stewards. Like it's <laughs> it's re it's really mean. It's not cool. Yeah. Can you explain to me, Josh, when Pip tells his sad story of how he ended up being in the Night's Watch, yeah. Sam says to Pip, could you sing me a song right now? <laughs> like, I'd really like to hear a song. Was he just being a jerk to Pip? Because that's a really mean thing to do. Or did Sam genuinely want to hear a song in that moment? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a great question. I was wondering the same thing because Pip is like being very vulnerable with John and Sam right now. You know, <laughs> he's like, he, he, he's telling them like a very, very terrible thing that happened to him that caused him to be sent to the watch. You know, he was sexually assaulted and he's opening his, his soul up to these guys. And then, yes, yeah, Sam just kind of, he, he says like, could you sing me a song, Pip? And I don't know if that was like just to get him out of the, <laughs> out of the way so he could get It was back very to- mean if that was the case i mean i think that we have established with sam that he is not the uh he's not the smoothest guy in the room like he's not the the you know the most social person like he is not the greatest operator on that level so it could have just been an honest mistake where like he thinks now that he's such good friends with pip that like the big reveal from pip is that pip has the voice of an angel and he really wants to hear some music and maybe some music would have helped underline the argument he was about to make to john or, you know, Sam is just kind of more strategic and devious than we thought. And he just really needled Pip out of the room. Uh, you know, I guess interpret that however you want. I but think he I, just I wanted to hear a song. Thing. I don't think that Sam is that mean. <laughs> I think he's just dense and uh, socially uh, awkward. Yeah. The origin of DJ Sammy Slayer in action. <laughs> yeah. He wants to cue up some music right at that point. Yeah. But he has a, he has he does have a good point to to John where he's like if you think about it like Lord Commander Mormont wants you to be his steward. He wants you to be the guy who's not only changing his sheets every single day, but you're also going to take his letters, you're going to, you know, be his scribe, you'll be his squire, you'll ride into battle with him, you'll it's know everything. Bad. You'll know everything. You'll know everything that's going on. You'll know everything, John Snow, if you become this man steward and you might even be lined up to be lord commander someday uh so i think that kind of gives john a little bit of a change of heart where he's like oh i never thought about it that way makes mm-hmm. sense okay we also have the first appearance of tywin lannister in the series uh in this episode talking with jamie as he is what dressing a stag is that right yeah, he is uh, butchering a stag. How about that for symbolism? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, the stag being the icon of House Baratheon uh, and Tywin, a Lannister, just eviscerating the thing in the very same episode where Robert Baratheon is going to die and Lancel Lannister is getting uh, potentially uh, accused by Varys or like heavily pointed at. It. It's like, oh, it's really sweet of that guy to have been so dutifully whining his uh, his Lord Liege. Uh, so it's, it's fun. It's fun. I mean, Game of Thrones is filled with these kinds of moments of just like this great imagery that, uh, holds resonance the further you poke at it. Okay. So a lot of important stuff in this episode, a lot of stuff with ramifications for down the line. So we are going to, with that, get into our spoiler section. Oh, wait. Is that Uncle Benjamin's horse coming back? It's, it's just the horse. There is no rider. I love that John can recognize that horse uh, just like oh, on that's site. Uncle Benjamin's horse. Yeah, he is a big fan of the horse, but no Benjamin. Benjamin is MIA. And now that we are in the spoiler section, Rob, and if you are not supposed to be here, you guys got to get out of here right now. We could talk a little bit about Uncle Benjamin, who uh, we're not going to see this guy for a very long time. Right. So what happened here that he ends up with getting attacked by White Walkers? I mean, we end up seeing at the Weirwood tree that ghost finds sort of like uh, a uh, I don't know if it's a frozen human arm or if it's a White Walker arm. Is that connected to the Uncle Benjamin thing? (laughs) 
I don't know if it's connected to the Uncle Benjamin thing, but it's, it's not gonna, connected to a walker. I'll tell you that right now. It's not connected to anything anymore. <laughs> it's, it, it is going to bear out pretty quickly, though, where we're going to have John and the Night's Watchmen who are north of the wall right now. They are going to bring back uh, a body, and that body is going to come back south of the wall into Castle Black. And in the very next episode, I believe, or maybe the one after that, uh, is where we will see uh, one of these corpses reanimate and attack Lord Commander Mormont. John is going to prove his worthiness as J.R. Mormont Stewart pretty quickly. Uh, whether or not that has anything to do with Benjen, I'm not sure. But we're not going to get any follow-up on Benjen really um, concretely until season six, uh, when he shows up for the first time and saves Bran and Mira from the attack by the White Walkers. And clearly he is uh, a little bit further gone himself, where he's like half White Walker, half not. He's in league with the Children of the Forest, and he's kind of been converted into this sort of halfway between alive and halfway between dead creature. It's never really fully explained exactly what he is. And it's also one of those things that kind of feels fan servicey, where he is uh, being given the role of a character from the book named Cold Hands, who is like somewhere between alive and dead as well and saves Bran Stark on Bran's journey north of the wall. But it's never confirmed that Cold Hands is Benjen in the book, at least not yet. It's not even really strongly suggested. I don't think personally, like I think that there are ways to read it, that cold hands and Benjamin are the same guy, but it's a great example to me of now that David Benioff and Dan Weiss are creating game of Thrones without the actual roadmap of George R. R. Martin beat for beat to adapt from that. They are kind of like, you know, taking some moments potentially and just being like, ah, oh, that seems like that would be fun for the fans. Let's turn Benjamin into cold Stark. That's always been my, my interpretation of that. But you don't think that this was amazing foreshadowing when Ghost literally comes back with a cold hand and brings <laughs> it to Jon Snow? You know, that's actually a pretty fair point. That's pretty good. Retroactively, <laughs> well, I mean, that's on good. the nose. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty funny. Nobody was that grossed out either. Nobody's like, uh, Ghost, what is that? Oh, 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 it's a hand. Oh, 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 Ghost, get that out of your mouth. Get out. Oh, that's gross. You would think at least Samwell might like really like just be booting, you know, in the corner. Just new guys in the back puking his guts out. You Nobody know, kiss Ghost on the mouth anymore. <laughs> Don't do it. Oh, that's so terrible. I've been, I've been letting Ghost lick me every day. Oh, no. Yeah, oh, no. yeah. it's got disease. It's bad. Okay. Um, uh, I want to go back to Tywin Lannister and, yes, uh, you know, such a great scene with, uh, Jamie as his introduction. We saw at the end of the previous episode or, uh, somewhere in the middle of the previous episode, Ned ends up summoning Tywin Lannister to court to answer for what the mountain was doing. And we end up hearing from Tywin about how strong of a motivation family and legacy is and tywin talks about how one day i'll be dead and he talk, he basically he names every single lannister that one day uh, you know every lannister will be dead most lancel, of them are L- yeah. lancel will be gone you know <laughs> the tommen will be dead dean charles yeah. chapman will play another lannister who will also be dead every yeah, lannister, lannister will be dead <laughs> Every land is, yeah, Marty, that's the Marty. Uh, <laughs> Marty, you got to come back with me. We need to make you king. There's got to be an Emmett Brown out there in Game of Thrones land, right? Like uh, probably Emmett spelled probably with like a Y uh, for that second E in Emmett. Like that guy has to exist. <laughs> yeah. Maester Brown, Maester Brown is out there. 
might be Kyburn. <laughs> he's kind of got he's got the hair you know it's got to be a little whiter but he kind of does have that dark brown hair oh, it's writing yeah. it's writing itself but anyway yeah no you're right and and tywin is laying out your mother's dead i'll be dead soon you and your brother and your sister and all of her children all of us will be dead all of us rotting in the ground it's the family name that lives on it's all that lives on not your personal glory not your personal honor but family um and i did i thought that this was especially fascinating in light of what we know through seven seasons of game of thrones where all of cersei's kids are dead tywin is indeed dead cersei jamie and Tyrion are all still alive but how long is that going to hold for um are we looking down the barrel here of a situation where one day tywin's worst nightmare will be realized and there will be no more lannisters yeah and does tywin deep down know about what's going on with jamie and cersei because he cites uh tommen and marcella and joffrey as lannisters when technically they're baratheons as far as everybody knows do you think that that was just like a slip of the tongue no there's i I, i'm blanking on which exact episode it comes up in but Cersei and, and Tywin, I think it might even be in Tywin's final episode, are, are going to have it out. And I think that Tywin probably does know deep down what the truth is, but he's really not up for admitting it. Like, I don't think that he would voice that publicly. I think in terms of Joffrey and Marcella and Tommen, they're of the Lannister bloodline either way. And I think if the Baratheons are about to be kicked to the curb, I feel like Tywin probably feels like it wouldn't be like the hardest thing in the world to do to just like change Joffrey's name to Lannister. Like we could probably make that Mm -hmm. work. You know, we're going to be in charge. Like we'll just kind of do whatever we want to do at that point. Yeah, I mean, by season seven, Cersei is basically going back to her maiden name and it's all like Lannister stuff. There's no Baratheon stuff going on in uh, King's Landing. So an interesting production note on this episode, Josh. So according to the uh, Game of Thrones wiki, this episode's runtime was short for episode number seven. So during the post-production, they ended up going back and adding two scenes to the episode. One is this really great scene that we're talking about with Jamie and Tywin. It ends up taking place all inside the tent during the Lannister camp. But the other scene that ends up getting added to this episode is the one at Winterfell between uh, the Asha and Theon uh, talking about what it's like to be a prisoner of the Starks. Wow. What a what a riveting scene. You know, if we were to rank the worst scenes in Game of Thrones, like I feel like this would be a sleeper <laughs> contender, you know, yeah. just like a kind of an unnecessary scene. I mean, look, does it, you know, sort of start laying some track for where Theon is going, where like he really is puffing up his chest about how he's an Iron Islander and you should be calling me Lord. And that's really going to inform where Theon is going directly in season two, where he is really going to really try to capitalize on where he comes from and show everybody who's boss but i feel like we were making you know headway on that in the scene in last week's episode where he is uh you know he is in the woods and he's talking to rob i feel like that's already happened right i don't know i'm not i'm not a big fan of this scene i don't like how impudent he is being even though he is accusing osha of being impudent yeah i'm not a big osha fan 
Yeah. Full disclosure. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about this a little bit, too. Like, I think she's fine. I think she's fine. I think that there was this feeling um, over the course of shooting this season and in seasons two and three as well of Osha being somebody who um, I think that the writers were really taking to. I think they really liked Natalia Tena's performance as this character. I think that they were giving her a little bit more to do than she got to do in the books, at least. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't know. I think time could have been better spent elsewhere. I did like hearing about the Shadow Cats, you mm-hmm. know, when Maester Lewin comes in and goes, uh, when, when Osha's talking about how there's things beyond the wall, and Maester Lewin's like, oh, yeah, owls and shadow cats, they're very scary. And she's like, no, not owls and shadow cats. I'm talking about other stuff. But it made me think, like, when are we going to see some shadow cats? Like, I want to see ice spiders and shadow cats in the final season of Game of Thrones, or I won't be happy. That's on our Game of Thrones bucket list. Let me pose to you this other question that was raised by my lovely wife. She wanted to know, how did Osha and the wildlings that they were that she was with in the previous episode, how did they get south of the wall? They probably did the same thing that uh, that Tormund and John and Egret are going to do in season three, which is just scale the thing. Which That's is what not I said. Easy. She's like, oh, and nobody saw them. Yeah, well, I think that the the Night's Watch is it's pretty thin. You know, there's really mm-hmm. not a lot of people at the Night's Watch, and like that's a big major point on the show, even at this stage of the game, uh, that the Night's Watch is really lightly attended, and that's not going to be a good thing when the White Walkers come, you know, trying to knock on Westeros's door. So I think like it's it's easier for wild things to get through in small groups than maybe it would seem on paper. Uh, so I'm not that I'm not that um, I'm not taken that far off guard by the fact that they would have been able to slip through the wall i think that this happens this is a kind of thing that does happen like i think that there are ways to sneak through the wall if you're like a small crew uh but if like you're mance raiders army or if you're the white walkers like you kind of got to make a show of it okay so we got to see over in essos josh a little bit of uh after the assassination attempt uh this really sort of like uh emboldens uh carl drogo in terms of what we're gonna do next uh, that's it uh for you jorah you get a, any horse you want <laughs> what a great gift like, okay, great. <laughs> yeah i just saved the khaleesi and all i got was this lousy horse like i mean come on yeah. Like you, you can give. I mean, I guess in in Dothraki culture, that's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big. And deal. also, like in Karma, he sort of like called in the assassination attempt. So you know, we shouldn't go too overboard for <laughs> him. Enough. Sort of like cleaning up the mess that he made. Fair um, enough. But then also, this is where Khal Drogo announces that for his unborn son, the stallion that will mount the world, he will get him that iron chair that he wants. Yeah, the iron chair. It just doesn't have the same ring to it as the Iron Throne, right? Uh, like I understand why Drogo is kind of out on the Iron Throne. They don't really have a word for that. But yeah, he makes this really epic speech, and he's talking about it. Starts gonna, good. It starts. Yeah. It starts on on the right foot, but then right. his campaign promises, I think, are unsettling. Yeah, I'll kill the men in iron suits and tear down their stone houses. Okay, good. I'll rape their women. Mm. I'll, ta- I'll take their children as slaves. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That doesn't seem great, and uh, by any measure. But we'll we'll learn a lot about Daenerys Targaryen over the course of the seasons, and this is like the exact opposite of that is her campaign platform. So I don't feel like she's. I don't know. Is is she like? Is she skeeved out by this speech as well yes. at this point in time? Like it's not very good. Yeah. 
No, I, I think that that uh, judging by her facial reaction, once he gets to and then will rape their women, she's like, uh, uh, I don't know I don't about that so. one. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. We'll talk about that. Like, not great maybe, call. Yeah, maybe she's feeling like I've had like something of a calming influence on him. Hopefully, I can you know untangle that from the campaign promises. But I don't know. I don't know if that's really uh, if Call Drogo is ever going to really back down from that or any. Dothraki warlord for that matter that's really ingrained in their culture and I think we know that the Dothraki are eventually going to get to the Seven Kingdoms but it's under Danny's rule and it's under Danny's rule after she has wiped out the warlords and if the warlords were still in place I don't know that she's able to to really command the Dothraki as effectively as she's seemingly able to um, in the seventh season of Game of Thrones and potentially beyond uh, so Drogo being removed from the mix eventually even though it's going to be sad for Danny in the moment, I think it's probably ultimately a pretty good thing. I think he would have been unwavering in those points. So if you and I were going to hop into the DeLorean with time traveling Ned Stark and go back in time to the period in this episode, what's the bigger regret for Ned? Is it A, not going with the Renly plan of seizing Joffrey or B, not going with the Littlefinger plan and then just marrying Sansa to Joffrey and then having everything just be peaceful with the Lannisters? I think that yeah, I think that the move here would have been to try to make peace with the Lannisters. Oh, that's not moment. what I thought you were going to say. You you think that it was to to kidnap Joffrey and to put Renly on the throne? I just feel like that it, judging by the worldview of Game of Thrones, it feels to me like that was the correct strategic move of grab Joffrey and then hold him prisoner and then you can force Cersei's hand and force the Lannister's hand and then you still have that note and you'd be able to like I think that Renly would have been a fine king based on all of the different rulers that we see I mean what was Stannis you have to deal with uh, maybe Stannis coming and maybe a two-pronged war between the Lannisters and uh, Stannis Baratheon but it was never going to end up working out with, you know, a jo- I mean, Joffrey was so horrible that he would have been horrible no matter what. I think, you know, there's really no move that is deeply within Ned Stark's character other than the move he makes. Uh, I think that that's really it's so Ned that it's hard to imagine him doing anything else. But if we could warg into Ned Stark and we could make some decisions on his behalf or like help him see the light, I think that the best move for him would have been to accept Cersei's offer in the Red Keep, in the throne room uh, and be like, okay. All right, I swear fealty. I'll go back north. I hate it here anyway. You killed Jory, and I'm still mad about that, and I kind of just want to cut my losses here and go back. And you can have Tyrion. You can have the impudent. We can send him back to you. Uh, but I'm going to go back to Winterfell. And then I think you go back to Winterfell. You bring Sansa and Arya with you. You reunite with Catelyn. You give Bran a kiss on the head because Bran's still alive against all odds. And then... I think you ride a little further north, and I think you pop a squat 
with Lord Commander Mormont and Maester Aemon. And I think maybe you start talking about the fact that we might have a rightful heir to the Iron Throne of our own right up here, a little guy named Jon Snow. And I think that's where you start to rally the realm behind a new possible king. You start building your base here in the north. You start making your claims behind Jon. And I think that's when you come back with a resurgent force to maybe even forge an alliance with Daenerys across the Narrow Sea if you can and have a full Targaryen resurgence. It feels a little weird because Ned did participate in Robert's rebellion and did a lot of work to get the Targaryens off of the Iron Throne in the first place. But I think maybe he's got some renewed respect for the Targaryens given what he knows about Jon. I wonder if that would have been the better play if he could have just thought things through a little bit further and start rallying behind Jon at this point in time. Just go back north, regroup, catch your breath, have a, you know, a hot shower, get a good meal in you, maybe start learning how to walk better, you know, go through some PT at this point and then come back with Jon Snow as your new king. Yeah. What about the move that Ned makes to send the letter to Stannis at this point in time? I mean, that Ned's letter to Stannis is ultimately going to set off Stannis marching towards uh, King's Landing, which we'll ultimately end up seeing uh, come the ninth episode of next season in the Blackwater episode. So was that a, a bad move to get Stannis in the mix? I think so, because uh, I think Renly's or was totally, Stannis coming no matter what. Well, I think I don't know that Stannis is coming no matter what. Like, I think that people value Ned's opinion. And I think if Ned is the guy who's saying, like, hey, I actually do have, like, the rightful heir to the Iron Throne, like, by the Targaryen sense of the word. And, like, he's a pretty good dude and I've raised him. I wonder if, like, people would buy into that. There are so many, like, egotistical, arrogant people in the world of Game of Thrones that I think that it would be hard for Stannis to abide that. Um, but I don't know. Like, yeah, I guess Stannis technically is the next guy in the Baratheon line. So, you know, if Ned's going to throw his support behind somebody that is like publicly out there right now, it's got to be Stannis if he's trying to play it by the book. But Renly's totally right that like nobody is going to have any love for Stannis. Nobody is going to be feeling united by Stannis Baratheon. Um, I don't know. There's like no really great choices here, Rob. Yeah, I guess it's because Stannis's claim is based completely on the fact that Joffrey is not a legitimate Baratheon, so it falls to the next Baratheon in line. Right. So it's not necessarily that it's that Joffrey is too young. It's that Joffrey is not a Baratheon. So I guess that that is the move in which uh, we end up getting Stannis into the mix. So if you were going to have Ned pull off your plan, then he should not send that note to Stannis. That's going to ultimately make things more complicated. Probably not, but it's good for drama. It's good for drama, and that we have no shortage of here in even the earliest days of Game of Thrones. Josh, did you catch the Littlefinger dagger get pulled on Ned Stark? Yeah, that's the one, right? Such an important dagger in the show's history. Where does it go all of these years in between season one and season seven? into the prop room in a very secure location so that they have it in pristine condition when they need to bust it out in season seven. Yeah. Littlefinger is going to keep it on his person for all these other seasons in the mix before we get to uh, its return in season seven. 
Yeah, so no, it's it's nice to see it here making this appearance. It does add a little bit more poetry to where we know Littlefinger is ultimately going. Uh, yeah, the the dagger. Uh, it is it is a it is an important artifact in the history of Game of Thrones and certainly in the life of one Lord Peter Baelish or Petire, I should say. R.I.P. Roy Detrees. Yes, uh, the narrator of the game of thrones audiobooks which was uh how i listened to the books that i've uh gone through and uh he also played the pyromancer in season two correct yeah yeah a great actor in his own right uh you know a very accomplished man who is uh who is no longer with us very sadly i believe 94 uh you know long life very long life for that guy but sadly we we lost him uh in between recording uh these two uh the last week's game of thrones podcast and this one so i do believe it it bears some mention here so rest in peace roy detrice and if you've never checked out the Game of Thrones audio books, they're great. That, they're they, great. They're great. He does a fantastic so much fun. job. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He's fantastic. He's really terrific. It's very, very sad. Very, very sad indeed. Uh, do you have anything else from this episode? Yeah, let's go back uh, very quickly to Castle Black to graduation day for these Night's Watch recruits. Uh, I thought it was really fun that even as early as this episode of Game of Thrones, the show is making it really clear that like the worst assignment you could possibly get on the Night's Watch is to not just be a steward, but be a steward at East Watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, this poor kid, Darren is getting sent to Eastwatch where he is going to be a steward for Borkus. Make no comments about his nose. I don't think that we ever see Borkus on uh, on Game of Thrones when we get to Eastwatch finally in Season 7, but of course Eastwatch is going to be a huge set piece for Game of Thrones uh, as recently as the final scene uh, that we have on the board as we are doing these podcasts, the Season 7 finale. So I thought that that was, that was fun. I, I liked that little... Uh, uh, that little wink and nod towards the future there. Do you think that they should have had Borkus in Eastwatch in season seven? Yeah, but I got to imagine that poor Borkus did not make it when uh, the Night King flew Viserion into the into Probably the not. Or he might I have been that- with uh, on that ranging party <laughs> with John. Right, right. Yeah, I think Borkus uh, has a lot more to worry about than whatever, uh, you know, self-image issues he has about his nose. I think that Borkus is in, in a tough spot. What about One-Eyed Joe in the stables? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's a little mean. Put out a limp of One-Eyed Joe. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember One-Eyed Joe. I don't know if One-Eyed Joe is a, is a thing, but... Uh, we got to keep at least one eye out for One-Eyed Joe in the future. Yeah. Is One-Eyed Joe a giant? <laughs> maybe yeah maybe he's the giant that we're that we're seeing. one one eye joe. Joe. Yeah. yeah yeah i like that uh i like that lord jano slint was in this episode of course the commander of the city watch that is going to turn on ned at Littlefinger's behest we'll see him again in king's landing uh early in season two when Tyrion is acting as hand of the king and he's going to banish him to the wall and that's going to be great uh because we know we'll get some retroactive vengeance for what jano slint did here and that's one of my favorite moments i love that scene where john kills this guy later on down the line so uh just planting the flag here that the the road for uh justice against jano slint it begins with this episode and no Tyrion Lannister in this episode. This is one of only six episodes in Game of Thrones that does not include Tyrion Lannister. You know, even the dink needs to take a break every once in a while, you know? Yeah. He's got a long trip back from uh, the Eerie. 
Yes, yeah, he does. That'll get very memorable very quickly as soon as next week's episode. So that'll be that'll be great. Can't wait to talk about next week. I think it's gonna be a fun one. Okay, next week's episode is the pointy end. Josh, is there anything you could tell us in terms of a preview for next week? Well, that's what you're supposed to stick them with, is my mm-hmm. understanding uh, from what Jon Snow has taught us about sword play. No, the pointy end is where the fit hits the shan for the Starks, uh, where everything is going to be out in the open. It's basically all-out war, uh, to borrow a phrase from The Walking Dead, uh, where we are going to see the Lannisters really making their move against the Northerners here, and Arya is going to be forced on the run, and Sansa is going to be put in a very bad position, and... And so whatever status quo, you know, the the mildest of peace that exists right now on the show is about to be completely thrown asunder. I mean, that is teed off with Ned getting captured at the end of this episode. But very, very quickly, very swiftly, we are going to lose characters and life is just never going to be the same for pretty much anybody. So the pointy end is really a sharp episode of Game of Thrones in so many ways. All right. Looking forward to that, Josh. In terms of your episode rankings, where does you win or you die fall in the top seven? This one's pretty good. Uh, There's like some scenes in here that hold it back just a little bit. I think I probably have it as Theon and Osha. Yeah, I don't love that. And I also I do have to say that I I think that the little finger scene in the brothel is so weird. It's just like it's just such an odd episode to me. So I think that I'm probably going to have it just above Lord Snow. Uh I think it's going to be the second lowest of my of my episode rankings oh, wow. here of the first season so far. Would would you have it higher am I being hard on uh am I being hard on you win or you die? <laughs> Easy. Um so I would say, uh, you know, I, I I haven't kept my own rankings. I mean, they're all really good. You know, it's it sounds low, but, you know, we are, uh, you know, sort of like really splitting hairs with uh, some of these really strong episodes from the first season. That's the thing. I mean, this is really a fruitless endeavor is is the truth. It's, you know, just the true true is that like most episodes of Game of Thrones are at least really good, uh, including this one. So even if it's going to be the second lowest ranked in season one, if that's where it ends up, ultimately, uh, it's still a great episode of television. Right. On a scale of one to ten, it's still like, uh, you know, an eight or eight and a half. Exactly. Like a bad episode of Game of Thrones is still better than, you know, most things, most things that you could watch. So uh, Mm -hmm. it's the it's the mildest of knocks. Yes. Okay. Um, That you're like a real uh, Dothraki uh, warlord uh, in terms of like ranking the greatest things in life. (laughs) That comes later. We don't have to get there for a little while. All right. So, Josh, uh, you and Antonio Mazzaro are continuing on with your Mr. Robot recapping as well here on Post Show Recaps. Two Mr. Robot episodes in the books. Uh, Mr. Robot season three off to a great start. Yeah, I'm loving it. I think season three of Mr. Robot is, uh, I think a lot of people would say a return to form. I certainly am of the mind that I think season two of Mr. Robot is also very, very good. But I think season three, it's, it is that sort of mix of what was awesome about season one and what was awesome about season two, where it's a wider scope. You know, these characters in a really deep and rich way, but there's sort of the same kind of frenetic energy and this propulsive quality that was found throughout season one, where there's just such 
such incredible momentum to that first season of this show that feels like it's intact here for season three and maybe a way that season two is a little bit slower for a lot of people. And I think that that's fair to say. So, yeah, Antonio and I, we are off to the races with Mr. Robot. We'll have our episode three recap coming up later this week. Very excited about all of that. Thrilled with the Mr. Robot right now. Okay. And of course, The Walking Dead, as Josh alluded to, All Out War is back. We've got two weekly podcasts coming at you every week on The Walking Dead front. And uh, Josh Wiggler and I will also be getting into answering your feedback questions about The Walking Dead premiere coming up here on Poster Recap. Yeah, that's great. I'm psyched about it. I love that Jess is filling in on the Sunday night show. I love her takes on Walking Dead. And hopefully she and I can get our act together and get a book club together before the end of this first half of the season. Uh, but no, we're in the thick of all out war right now, Rob. So we want your questions if you haven't sent them in for our feedback show, which is where you'll get my Walking Dead hot takes. Uh, what are the best ways to get your feedback in for that show, Rob? Email TWD at postshowrecaps.com or leave us a message at postshowrecaps.com slash voicemail. All right. So make sure you don't miss an episode of this when you subscribe to our Game of Thrones podcast feed, postshowrecaps.com slash GOT iTunes. Or you could subscribe to everything we do here at postshowrecaps at postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes for Star Trek Discovery, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and so much more. All right. Follow Josh Wiggler on Twitter. He is at Round Howard. Josh, anything else? Nothing else from me, man. All right. Looking forward to getting into it next week with you guys here when we talk about the pointy end here on Winter Was Here, a Game of Thrones rewatch on postshowrecaps.com. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Bye.